You're listening to Conversations with Shonda, a Minneapolis Foundation podcast that unpacks the community's grittiest, most vexing problems, hosted by Shonda Smith-Baker. Nikki McComb, welcome to Conversations with Shonda. It's been a long time coming, but I figured it was timely as I attended the opening to your exhibit yesterday at the Downtown Library. And so I wanted to build on the energy of that exhibit to have this conversation with you. Awesome. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. You are welcome. So let's talk about you first. So how do you describe yourself? I think that I would consider myself to be a dedicated community artivist. I don't like the word activist. I like the word artivist. I use it in that way because I think that art is the thing that created me to act into addressing issues that are in community. And I come from community and I've had many, many years of my own experience in community, which which is what led me to doing the work that I do now. So I am a person that has deep rooted love and passion for change in community when it comes to youth and families. I'm one of those people that if I know somebody needs something, I'm going to just really go hard to try to figure out how to help them, get other people to help them, find the entities or groups um, that need to come together to resolve the issue to whatever the barrier is. And that's kind of like what I've done since I decided I wasn't going to be a troublemaker anymore. (laughs) So let's talk about the troublemaking days. You don't have to say nothing you don't want to share. No, it's it's the truth. It's the truth. It's the reason why I'm, why I'm in the work that I'm in. Like I made terrible choices and I didn't have to. I made them based on loss of identity and things like that. I'm not a perfect person, but but back then lost in your own in your own skin is something that not everybody experiences. You know, I was adopted. I was um I'm of North African descent, so I was in a place where I didn't really know who I was and so I was I was seeking everywhere I went I sought validation for either who I thought I was or who I wanted other people to think I was, or even sometimes just trying to be what I wasn't to fit somewhere because it it never worked. You know, I, I was, I have learning disabilities, like big ones. Um, I'm dyslexic when it comes to numbers. I have, it's called dyscalculia. I have that. I have dyscalculia. I have dyslexia. I was actually diagnosed with oppositional defiance disorder when I was when I was younger and I had to work really hard to, to make sure that I was able to overcome some of the obstacles that I had as a young person. And I got in trouble. And when I got in trouble and I found out I was pregnant, then that's the moment in my life where I was like, I can't, I can't do this anymore. I can't, I can't be trouble. Thankfully I was so young. I wasn't a teenager, but I was, I was still in my mind, not a full grown adult, but I, I became, I got pregnant and um, and that changed my life. It changed the decisions that I was going to make. Um, I immediately enrolled in school. I, I thought I wanted to be a beautician. So I went and did that. I went to school for human services because I really wanted to help people. So I was kind of doing both at the same time with no car apartment, with no furniture. You know, I didn't have nothing. I was, I was raising a kid, uh, a baby, by myself with, you know, little or nothing. And and I had to figure out how to navigate services. 
And that's kind of what led me into the work is, is me having to navigate for myself, just built, built up a bank, a big bank of years and years and years of resources and services. So that's our what, kids are a day apart. Yes. Just recently a day apart. Like their birthdays were just the other days. <laughs> it, was, it was the other day. <laughs> it's on Wednesday. She was due. My daughter was due on my birthday and she was a week early. Yeah. One day after yours. One day after my child. And so you were a child who was not anchored to identity. And I want to touch on that a little bit because, you know, as we are in community and particularly as we are talking about race, community, history, mental health, all of the things that are very topical right now in terms of public discussion. One thing I don't hear a lot about is how do we make sure that our kids have a positive self-identity? And so you said that language and I'm wondering how do you think that would have made a difference in your young life? I I wasn't um, led to believe anything other than nothingness, right? Because I didn't have it, right? I was adopted. The parents that I had were amazing, wonderful. I'd probably be dead if I didn't have them. And I'm thankful that I had them because if I'd have been raised by my mother, I'd for certain be not alive. I think that if I had even just a small uh, amount of um, guidance in identity, even if it was provided by them through them doing research and learning, that I probably would have had different ideas of what I should be doing as a young adult or as a teenager. Does that mean have an exposure to people that look like you? Does it mean having roots and where you came from? Does it mean understanding you as Nikki, woman, young girl? What does identity mean for you in your terms? The elements that I missed the most that I still, even to this day, is my roots to my to my culture. If I had been in, in, in my culture, I'd probably be a Muslim. So I know that you've recently been able to connect with some of your biological family. How meaningful has that been for you? Life-changing. How so? I have siblings who are 15 years younger than me, you know, 15, 14, 13 years younger than me. There's three of them. And and they each have expressed and explained to me, um, you know, how they were raised. And and out of two boys and a girl in, in my culture, which is the Egyptian, Egyptian Mali culture, girls are sheltered. They're not allowed to go out and do the things that boys do. When I talk to my, my little sister, cause she's my little sister, <laughs> she tells me and I can see it. I see her not knowing about certain things or even, even when she was at the exhibit, she said, I've never seen anything like this. I've never even been around something like this. I would have never known about anything like this if it weren't for you. She's shared, you know, how, how she was protected and sheltered in, in the home um, because my biological father was strict about that. The boys were the, they were, they went out and <laughs> killed the prey and brought it home and they were boys. You know, girls are are treated differently in, in that culture. It's really interesting to think about people are often uh, what we be reflective on what another experience might look like or grieving something in their lives that they may not have had, right? Like sometimes the grass is greener, but regardless of however you resonate with it, there's always things that you can learn, right? When you 
sort of are able to reflect on what you have to what someone else has. And we often can do that in a family sense, like what you've been able to do. But it seems like it's often harder to do when you're talking about social issues where how do you think about what someone else's experience or what you have an experience and how by understanding it more deeply, you can understand yourself more deeply. You're connected. We're connected to each other. We met over years. We've run into each other here and there. But then formally, you came to work at Pillsbury United Communities. So I remember being, you know, obviously we we knew of each other because, we, you know, our kids were all the same circles in the community. And, you know, you were working in, in youth achievement and, and still, even though you were director at Oak Park, you were still working on violence prevention and violence prevention issues. So, and I was at a, uh, I was at District 287 at, at Bren Road and I was just exhausted. I mean, I was exhausted from, from day in and day out uh, working with these young people that just, that I couldn't, in that district, you can only touch them during the day. So you can only work with them, help them remove a barrier during a small period. And then they're done. They're gone. There's nothing else you can do. And I wasn't able to make a lot of the change. I've seen you somewhere. And and, and when I saw you, you said, oh, by the way, something, something. And I was like, oh, okay, I'm definitely looking at that. And I looked at it and we ended up working there at Oak Park. And it was, it was super rewarding because Oak Park was like right in the center of the community. And it hadn't been utilized the way that you wanted it to be utilized for quite a bit of time. And so I kind of just came in there and (laughs) hit the ground running. And I think a lot was done when I was there. I think under your leadership as the CEO of the organization, some of the things that I was able to do there were really because of you. Let's talk about that though. So a couple of things. One is when you say you just hit the ground running, you know, I, on this podcast and I, in these conversations, I've had um, many references to Tony Wagner. And I'm going to reference him again because he would always say, and he wrote a paper on this, that we're, we began to over-professionalize community work. You know, and I hear that in how you were talking about your former role of you can help people, but it's between eight and two. But a lot of times the real work is after hours. It's after the hours of organizations. It's after the hours that schools are closed. And so you came in and uh, you were disruptive in a lot of ways because you saw a need and you would go for it. And sometimes it would be within the confounds of a program. And sometimes it was not. Right. So let's talk about that, because. I would be like, Nick, you can't do that. And you're like, yeah, but the, like this kid needs it. This family needs it. Why can't we do it? And, you know, I think it's important to have people like that in every organization. I think that way. And so, you know, being there on a daily basis and, and getting kids to come back through the building and working with families and working with the programs that were coming through Oak Park at that time, the BS school and the state funded programs that were meant to serve families the organization was taking on that role to to do that, but then the funding program didn't always give enough. So then me and the other people in, in Oak Park that were tasked to getting the job done had to go outside of the job to get it done. So I did. I definitely, Facebook, to be honest, was a huge help in, in some of the work that there were times when somebody couldn't pay their rent. And I I, I went to Facebook and doop, 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 and rent was paid. It's not traditional, but it worked. And then 
it became the buzz of what do you need? Go, go find Nikki at Oak Park. You need something? Yep, I can do it. I'm gonna find it. Which is probably a weakness of mine because I I, I overextended myself a lot of times and I never overpromised, but I did overextend and and that that's not always good to to do. Well, I mean, it's interesting that you formed it that way, or it's the limitations of how the system works, right? That doesn't allow you to fully serve people under the conditions. Right. And so I've sat on all sides of this, right? And I've been committed of like, what new angle can I find? But it definitely was, was challenging <laughs> on occasion. And so um, I laugh about it. And there was a lot of good work uh, that was done. And and what Tony would say is that when he came and started at Pillsbury United Communities, and it was Northside Neighborhood Services, actually, I think when he started, he was very much like youth workers were people that worked with youth. And they went out onto the avenue and they would find young people and they would connect them to resources. And sometimes those resources would be within those organizations. And sometimes those resources weren't. But their job was to engage youth. Yeah. And it wasn't like this list of what you can and can't do other than make sure that these kids, their time is occupied, they're safe and they're headed in the right direction. And I think that's what he meant with the over-professionalizing mm-hmm. of the work that we've put so many restrictions that sometimes we're unable to serve people fully and completely, or we're serving a piece of them and not holistically. And I think you do come at it holistically. Um, I think it's an advantage that we both have in terms of bringing in what we know we needed to what we try to provide to others. Agreed. I so, remember there being times where where I would see a small child, I don't know, six or seven, parentless, that literally just wanted to eat. And, and it's so simple to feed a kid, you know? Yeah. I also remember there was a time where we were navigating funding restrictions and all kinds of things. And we only got paid for, for kids that had applications and, and registration. And so the kids that need it the most don't come sometimes with parents that will come in and fill out paperwork. And so we navigated attention there between how we served the community because the ones that really needed were the ones that were roaming around that didn't have someone that was sort of looking after them that would just show up while we're doing programming inside. They'd be swinging in the yard on the play equipment. And I think there was a few times where, where Mr. Ed and I actually walked to a person's house just to see, just to see if we could get somebody that was a, a, a stakeholder in that child's life to sign just so we could let them in the building at least to, to eat a meal. Yeah. Mr. Irwin. Yep, Mr. Irwin, Mr. Ed, yeah, over the neighborhood. Because <laughs> we know each other so well. We got yeah. Mr. Irwin, Ed Irwin, yes. So when I came into uh, Pillsbury United Communities in 2011, and um, I have shared as well that my first week of being the CEO, my cousin Christopher Miller was killed. Mm-hmm. Christopher Calvin Miller. Yes. May, May 11th, uh, 2011 was, was killed. And um, I was one weekend to being the CEO. And as I've described it, I was at a career high, really, mm-hmm. and a personal low in a way that I don't believe I've ever really had to navigate 
um, probably until recently when my mom passed away. And that even felt a little different in, in some respects. Um, and so the community is celebrating and I just want to just not wake up, right? Right. It's sort of what I was feeling. And so there's so much more that I can say and what I learned about myself there. But fast forward to Cindy Kent and Chris Cohen reached out to me about an exhibit that they saw at the Aspen Institute that came from New Orleans. Jonathan Fiera, they met at, at Aspen at the Action Forum. And they said, Shonda, you know, like, I would love for you to bring this exhibit to the Twin Cities. And Shonda said, Nikki, help me. <laughs> Nikki, help. Help me figure this out because I was fascinated by it, but really actually motivated by personal reasons because I had been sitting in grief for five years, for four years at that moment. Mm-hmm. I think when it came, I couldn't quite get to a place where I felt whole, right? Like knowing that there was always going to be a whole H O L E in my heart. Right. But I couldn't, I didn't feel whole with the, you right. know, with the W. Right. Um, and so I was thinking through this and I'm like, well, maybe if I bring this, I can park this in some sort of way and feel like I'm making a little bit of a difference and elevate the issue around gun violence. And we decided to approach it a little bit different, which Jonathan lost his mind over, but eventually he was convinced that it was the right thing to do. And we put some pieces inside of Pillsbury House and Theater. And I'm sharing this story because in the story, we decided that we needed to take care of kids because there was pieces that could be triggering for lack of better word. There were images of guns, right? There was this big piece that sort of was an automatic weapon with this big half circle thing that came back with the idea that when you shoot, what goes around comes around. That was really what was embodied in this piece of artwork. And it was, it was massive. And we sat it right when you came into Pillsbury house. And what happened out of it were these amazing stories of these kids that were coming in after school and they were sharing how they had found a gun in a park or they knew where their parents had hid their guns. They had handled a weapon. Um, And what we realized is that we weren't having conversations despite the increase of gun violence and accidental deaths and suicides in our communities. We were not talking to our kids about guns, for instance, in the same way that we did around stranger danger or around sex education. And it was really illuminating uh, for me. Gabby Giffords came to part of it. And I'm sharing a piece of this history and evolution because when we did the opening and we were at public functionary was where the rest of it sat, it did more for me than what I thought it would do for me emotionally. And it lit a fire under me in terms of what we should be doing around public safety. Yeah, definitely. Weren't you also, when when all of this, when you entered Pillsbury, weren't you also dealing with tornado? I was dealing with the tornado. The tornado hit two days after Chris's funeral. I cannot really envision a harder way to enter into being a leader of an organization, but I imagine mine is not the most challenging, right? There was just so, there's so many components in this because I remember Nikki looking at 
when I got the role, like what happens when you're leading an organization, when you yourself are impacted by the things you're trying to change? Mm-hmm. I couldn't find nothing. I'm like, oh, I'm going to write this. I'm going to write this book. Antonio Cardona, I used to tell him, I got a book. I got the name of it. I'm going to write about what I learned and what I needed um, during that time period. But I remember at the public opening for that exhibit, Guns in the Hands of Artists, that we had been trying to do a gun buyback so that we could do something similar. And at the time, Betsy Hodges was the mayor. And at that event, she she approved our gun buyback. I think it was an emotional (laughs) (laughs) decision, but thank God she did. Yeah. Um, And she did it in front of an audience and we were able to move forward and decommission artists. And then eventually it moved into art is my weapon. Yes, it did. That was, uh, and and in all actuality, I think that the buyback, the buyback that was, that took place, if I remember correctly, I probably have maybe four pieces left from that, from that original buyback, which to me speaks volume as to how far a few weapons taken off the street and decommissioned can go. And 11 volumes of Art Is My Weapon has been executed. Wow. I remember when we did it, it seems so dumb now, but as soon as we said that we were doing a gun buyback, I had a number of people that were calling my office and they were not all friendly. I'm sure. And I had people that were actually leaving me voicemails of them firing off guns. And um, a lot of very strange things that should have been more intimidating than they were. I'm sure it was because I was navigating so many other things that I just didn't really feel afraid of whatever it was. Right. And the day that we did the gun buyback, remember the, the guy who pulled up in the pickup and he was buying the guns? Now I was uh, I wasn't at the location, but you guys were. I remember you guys calling me and saying, and those guys show they show up, and it's it's like, really? Yeah, it's <laughs> a little creepy. It's creepy. Yeah, it is. The, you know? the one the one thing I also remember was the grandmother that showed up with the revolver in her purse. Mm-hmm. And she said that she was scared for her grandsons, and would we buy the weapon that she found? Didn't you have to like go get gift cards just for her? Because weren't we like, we had ran out of money. I went to the cash machine. I went to the cash machine and just took money out of my account and bought her gun and then gave it to the the police there to decommission the weapon. She needed to pay a bill. Mm -hmm. Um, To me, this is how community work works. And sometimes you see it in formula, right? In reports. But a lot of times it's the things that happen between the bullet points that you agreed to do. That is where the magic happens and where innovations occur. Mm-hmm. And so we, we did this gun buyback and I know for you were all that listening, honestly, we're going back and forth between 2011 and 2016 in the conversation. And so this is around 2016 and we decommissioned um, those weapons and then um gave them to artists and the difference between guns in the hands of artists and this is that we gave them to anyone that had a desire to create. And so the original artists that came around, Nikki remind me because I remember them, there were people that someone lost someone because of a mass shooting 
a lot of the artists that, that are still, they had work yesterday. Matter of fact, one of the original artists that uh, witnessed the shooting when he was just a, a child, create he and I created a piece together that was in that first exhibit that was of a child. It, my part was a photo of a child sitting at a table with gun parts that he actually painted and put on this child's table with teddy bears and so on and so forth, painted the primary colors, yellow, red, green, you know, the, the, the things that we want our kids to learn when they're young to play with. These primary colors are the solid primary colors that children are supposed to play with when they're toddlers and that's how they learn their colors. And so he was just witnessed a shooting when he was young and, and he has been a part of our art is my weapon since you and I met with him before the exhibit went even even took place. John Sherman is who I'm talking about. He and probably you know Sean Garrison, who has been there from the very beginning, Mike Klein, um, Kyle Folkin, Betsy Alwyn, Ann Meany. There a lot of the artists that that had work in in this recent show, and they've had the same George Roberts, um, who lives right you know Homewood Studios, lives right in in community and. You know, a lot of them have had work continuously. Most of the work, um, you know, they they take it back and they preserve it. And then whenever the next exhibit comes around, you know, the work is available, but they also create new work. So there's artists that have been involved since since we laid those gazillion parts on the floor in the Pillsbury Oak Park, <laughs> in the Oak Park uh, basement for them to sift through and 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 choose something to create with what does it mean to decommission a weapon so it's it's changed when you organize the one that you organized at pillsbury the decommissioning and deconstructing was maybe two parts so a a revolver might have been just cut into two parts inoperable a rifle might the stock might just be cut off and the and the uh, trigger disengaged, um, a lot more whole pieces were left. Now, after after participating in receiving weapons from uh, one in 2020 and one here just recently, they go down so far that it's almost dangerous to dig in the box because the metal, you know, there's so many tiny little metal pieces. Um, and when artists come and pick, pick their weapons out, they, their hands are black. Because because there's so much residue from the decommissioning. Are they doing that because there's concern about people rebuilding the weapons or using parts or rebuild concern? And um, sometimes when when and, and and they've showed me pictures of sometimes when you open some of those weapons up and make them inoperable, there's really sharp springs and pieces in there that we used to get and they'd be like in a side bucket. They don't include those anymore. So we're getting small pieces of metal that came from one chunk. It's very different. They also handle the decommissioning uh, very differently than they did then. And when, um, how do you, so I know that you've had a core group of artists and uh, we are really grateful for them and bringing their art to us, but you've also had new artists that have come on board. So how do you find, or how do they find you, the new artists? It goes both ways. Sometimes they find me um, just by seeing a post or seeing something on the Artist My Weapon Facebook or Instagram. They might sometimes on the news because of some of the programming that I'm doing in the schools, they'll see it. But there are often times where I just straight out recruit 
for artists that are working in multiple mediums. And so it could be a recruit or it could be they find me. I, I typically don't turn anyone down ever, even if it's a theater artist. I try to figure out a way like like Joe Davis, uh, who was, you know, there. He's he's done things before with Art Is My Weapon. I just think that inclusion is important. We started Art Is My Weapon. Really, it was a personal way for me to heal. When I was looking at the art, there was something that that spoke to me particularly a piece from the original show in New Orleans. I think it was called The Play. And it was in a box. And I could be making pieces of this up, but you can go find it, you know, for the listener. But but the essence of it was this, is that when someone is shot or killed, it touches, you know, at least 200 people. That it spreads like a plague, right? So it's Every child that person went to school with that remembers, oh, he was in my class. You think about it. You know, it's where the parents worked and they're like, oh, man, I worked with their mother. I go to church with their grandmother. I used to that used to be the kid on my school bus. That was my kid on my football team. Mm -hmm. She used to be in my dance class like it hits and it moves and there's a vibration of, of that pain that stretches out and, and gets more intense, the more proximate you are. It made me think of, of Christopher and how many people showed up in community to support our family and to acknowledge his life as he left this earth that he touched. Right. And this is not something that we are not proximate to, whether or not you are immediately proximate is, is one thing, but certainly we have seen or have the option to see live death on social media with some of the police incidents. We have had witnessed and watched the news stories when there have been mass occurrences in our, in our communities across the country. We have a pandemic related to violence that has been longstanding and some of us have been hit hard by that. What has Art Is My Weapon done for you and the families that have been impacted by violence? Do you hear from them? Have oh, you included them? Absolutely. They are, they're the reason that I honestly do any of this. Um, the, the exhibits are, it started as, you know, the exhibits because as you mentioned, starting it because of a thing that personally affected you. I had not personally been affected by gun violence, but I personally am moved by those affected by gun violence because of the nature of my inner spirit. It just, I just, I needed to do something um, using the skills that I have. And the skills that I have are creativity and, and art, creating, cultivating and mobilizing. And so I really wanted families that I personally knew or that worked with closely on some other things that I was doing in community to understand and know that their voice should and needs to be heard. And I gave them outlets to do that by involving them. And also, these are people that would have never sat down and said, oh, I, I can make art, you know, um, and involving in them, involving them in something where they had the opportunity to um, use their hands and their hearts and their minds together while talking about their their loved one. Actually create something that they would in the end either have taken part in ownership of or that they would own themselves 
or that would be on display for others to see them work through their pain and their coping. So whether or not it it means working with a young person that violated probation or had a gun charge and that's why they were on probation or had been shot at risk to be shot or whatever the case was, I invited those young people through um, community partners in corrections and in community organizations to work with me and Chicago Fire Arts Center to learn how to uh, work with metals and build and talk about their experience with a weapon whether it was as a perpetrator, a victim, or a survivor. And these are people, they, they were in the same room. So survivors and, and family members of victims got to hear from juveniles that may have been charged or may, may be on probation or whatever the case was. And they actually together, out of gun parts, with the direction of Heather Doyle at Chicago Fire Arts Center, built benches that are placed in different places in the community that tell the stories of how these families and these people that worked on them were affected by gun violence. So there might be a bench that has six different people's hands on it, youth all the way up to a a 60 year old woman. And and it tells their story of their experience in building the bench. And it's in a place in a space that's open to community where if they desire, they can go to my website and get a lock from Art is My Weapon, write whatever name on it. If they lose someone to gun violence, they can go hang it on the bench in one of the locations. But you can you can find that on the artismyweapon.org. Yes. When I transitioned out of Pillsbury United Communities, I don't even know if you acknowledged that I was leaving being the CEO. What I think you said is, what are you going to do with Art is My Weapon? I did it after you left. I was like, what lady? You left me in the death <laughs> Never mind what you're going to do, but what about this this body of work? What what about this body of work? And so I appreciate the origin story is important to me because whenever I think of art as my weapon, I see it as the way in which I'm honoring the life of my cousin. It feels deeply personal, but I was just part of the launch. You've led the growth. It's yours. I just have a small piece of of that history of taking what was guns in the hands of artists, moving it through my pain and the energy of what was happening around me to saying we can, I was inspired, right? Art is is about inspiration and it it inspired me to think about what what is a what does a chapter look like here? And then it moved under under you to its own thing and and you have taken and shepherded and you have grown it. And what you said is that there's been now 11 exhibits across the city that has showcased work. What I remember as young as an artist, as young as 10 years old. Yeah. The youngest. Who just turned 17. Jeez. Mm-hmm. He just turned 17. And he had amazing work and perspective and, What I love about it is that it's not just for those that see themselves as artists. It was it was for those that needed a creative outlet that can be along those that are indeed artists. Right. As a career, it spans generations, it spans neighborhoods, it spans the realities of what violence looks like, whether or not it's on the neighborhood block, whether or not it was in someone's home, whether or not it was someone who harmed themselves. And I think someone said it yesterday at the opening of the exhibit is that, you know, no matter how it happens, we all understand pain. 
We can all understand loss. And so you have a new exhibit that um, was supposed to take off and then the pandemic hit. But now it's very excitingly downtown at the Hennepin Library. Do you want to say anything about that? Yeah, I'm beyond grateful for the the library reached out. They wanted to do it in 2020. And as you mentioned, pandemic hit and then we were going to do it in 21 and it just people just still weren't safe enough. And 22, same same story. So 23 came and, and, and the library called and said, hey, it's time. And so Russell Johnson, hands down, like normally this exhibit, I would have been there every day receiving artwork, organizing, coordinating. But due to a foot injury, I was not able to do that. But Russell Johnson, who is the arts and culture librarian, hands down handled everything from communicating with the artists that I sent him to uh, receiving the artwork to taking crazy calls from me at, <laughs> after he was off, you know, to to organizing uh, and rallying people, working with their PR person, Josh Yetman, you know, just just put in a ton of work. Yeah. What is the name of the exhibit? It's titled Unburden Yourself. Why that name? So in 2020, through a partnership to do a gun buyback with Shiloh Temple and Wellspring Second Chance Center, the, the buyback was actually unburden yourself, get your weapon, bring it here, get rid of it. No questions asked. I like it. There's so much symbolism uh, to that, right? Unburden yourself, get rid of the weapon, unburden yourself in terms of holding grief is not a strategy. Right. <laughs> right. It only increases your trauma. Like how do you move it in community? And so we watched that happen yesterday where you had how many artists? Uh, the entire exhibit hosted 33 artists. The youngest was a 17-year-old who was the niece of one of the artists that's been around for about four years. They they came from Chicago. They come from Chicago every year just to get their pieces and then to work on their artwork and then to come back for, for the exhibit. So it was her first exhibit. Um, she was nervous and crying and and all of that. And I And I just kept reassuring her that that she was doing something good and her piece was like spot on to what she as a 17 year old sees and relates to when it comes to gun violence in her community there are some really powerful expressions and people had varying reactions to it i was there with my granddaughter nakai and she wrote in the book i don't know if you saw it but she wrote in the in the guest book I haven't seen the guest book, but I was I wanted to be very intentional about asking you if she asked questions or if she said anything to you. She did. And what I found myself being was protective. So when you started talking, I moved into the corner and I was sort of moving around and sort of trying to distract her a little bit because I didn't know what she could hold or handle. And I sort of backed into a corner with no doors. <laughs> so there was no way to really move around it. But I, I had asked her, I said, you know, are you okay? And she said, this is an important conversation and more kids should be having it. And at first in the book, she said, thank you, Nakai. And then she went back and you'll see that she added some other language in there about what she felt. It wasn't a lot, but she added more language in there. And it brought me back to what we did at Pillsbury House, where we are having these conversations as though our children are not witness or they're not thinking about them. 
And I even played that out a little bit yesterday, although there's no real way for her to be removed from the public discussion or reality of what this is in community or on television or on social media or on the shows that she watches, that um, our young people are aware. It brought me back to those Pillsbury House young people that were so expressive in terms of how they felt and what were happening. And you had uh, two of the speakers for sure that talked about finding a weapon or being close to a shooting that impacted them in their childhood. And so, you know, from your experience for those parents and people working with kids in community, would you have any insights that you would want to provide in terms of how they should be thinking about um, the issue of, of safety and wellness and trauma? Just like you mentioned, even, even, when it comes to young people that are the age of Nakai, nine, eight, seven, I feel protective, but I still think that having the conversations by asking them questions to, to gauge what they know. So then, you know, what feels safe to say that can be a learning experience for them and still give them information on a really soft, safe level that might not traumatize them in that moment so that they can avoid instances of guns that 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 they might come across that that aren't locked up. We don't know what happens in every home, right? And so I think parents have to have the conversation like us, you know, just like we're having now, but in a way we know our kids, you knew, but you felt protective, right? You still wanted to protect, but you still had the ability to ask her questions to receive an answer. Yeah, no, I had my my older sons for sure. I remember them going to a session actually at the fourth precinct because I was one of those moms that like I wasn't really down with with toy guns. Yeah. Like water guns in the in the summer, ner- nerf guns outside maybe, but I really wasn't down with that. But I had them do um a workshop that was held there to talk about the danger of toy guns, particularly those that look like real weapons and the danger of that. And I was very adamant about those things when they were little, almost ridiculously so. Richard Robinson Jr. was there yesterday. He's licensed in bonded security. He also teaches weapons safety and concealing and carry classes. And so the thing that struck me is that he is someone who sort of believes in your amendment, your rights, rights to bear arms, yet he understands the importance of safety. And as part of that conversation that I took from and that I guess we're sort of winding around to is there are questions that you should ask when your kids go to other people's homes and, you know, do you have weapons? Are they locked up? I think he said you can go to his website and get free gun locks. Is that correct? You can go there and find links to get them. Yes, you should be able to go to any any technically range your police department and get free free gun locks. Free gun locks. So they're like, if you're gonna be a gun owner, be responsible and make sure that we're keeping them out of our young people's hands because anything can happen, and we've seen those things happen. So yeah. as we close, Nikki, the exhibit at the the Hennepin Library runs until May twenty seventh. May twenty seventh. Yes. The hours of the library, you will be having and featuring artist talks and have other presenters perhaps throughout the the timeline of the exhibit. And so people then should go again to artismyweapon.org 
to find out more detail. And then for the hours of the exhibit, they should go to the Hennepin County Library website. Yes, both, both of those are correct. There will be an artist talk scheduled closer to the end date. It'll be all over artismyweapon.org, artismyweapon Facebook, um, Friends of the Hennepin County Library Facebook, and the Hennepin County Library website. And then for those that have an interest in learning more, and if you're an artist, I would direct you also to the artismyweapon.org website to just learn more about the organization and its vision for the artists. The artists are not paid. They just come in and do this work. And so the way that they do get paid is if their, their artwork gets purchased. And if there are donations made uh, to the artists and to the organization, is that correct? That is correct. They they do not get paid unless it's previously agreed upon or the exhibit is asked to be somewhere and they offer a stipend, but it's usually very minimal. So oftentimes, you know, the only way for them to f- gain financially uh, is to sell their work. And Art Is My Weapon does not take any percentage of their work. Art Is My Weapon does not only curate exhibits, right? So we most recently in the last, um, I'm going to say three and a half years, have delivered trauma-informed care workshops using art to um, specifically uh, help young people in school settings and adults in settings where they're working with young people that are, that either come into the hospital setting or uh, into their school setting to understand and learn how to use um, different artistic methods, whether it's an artist that I've asked that's an abstract artist or a sculptor or dance, theater, whatever, um, they'll come in and teach a coping method for that audience to work through or cope with whatever traumatic experience they may have had. It primarily is the target audience is primarily those affected by gun gun crimes and violent crimes. Oftentimes there's, you know, I don't, I don't say no. I don't turn people away. I try to use the creativity as best I can to serve anyone who has been affected dramatically. And that's Nikki McComb and our host, Shonda Smith-Baker. Before we go, we want to remind our listeners that the 2023 exhibition, Volume 11, Unburden Yourself, is now open at the Hennepin County Central Library Cargill Gallery. If you have the chance, we highly recommend checking it out before it closes on May 27th. It's a powerful exhibit that explores themes of healing, empowerment, and resilience through art. Thank you again for listening on Conversations with Shonda.